Game and Watch with Aaron and James, the show where we talk about games we've been gaming and movies and TV shows we've been killing. I'm the killer. I'm James. And today, uh, I'm not the killer. Um, There is one, because today we're talking about Scream 2, the 1997 slasher flick directed by Wes Craven. I thought just moments before we started recording that I wish I had bought like the voice modulator or something to just say, like just to say I'm James using that voice to see if I could catch you off guard. I thought it'd be really fun to to throw you off like that. And then sure enough, you, you, you threw me a curveball. <laughs> and I didn't even need the fancy voice modulator. No, you didn't. No. Well done. How much mileage do you get out of that talent? Um, not nearly enough. I use it exclusively for podcasts where I discuss scream and scream related movies. I think you should start cold calling your friends. <laughs> It'd be hard to cold call these days because, you know, cell phones tell you who you're talking to. No. <laughs> yeah. But it doesn't mean like, just cause it says Aaron doesn't mean that like someone else can't be on the other end who just killed you. I think if I prank called my friends with that voice and then killed them, I'd run out of friends pretty fast. Well, yeah, I'm not saying you have to kill them. I'd still run out of friends pretty fast. <laughs> um, yeah, Scream 2. This was, we teased this last week, obviously. Um, we had considered doing a different Scream movie, and I and you kind of pushed for this one, and I think that that was the right choice. I agree. Um, no one can tell me that Scream 2 is not a film. No, no one can no. tell me that it's not two hours long. <laughs> and... <laughs> That's true. It's very true. I, I think like my perspective is that if we had done Scream, I would have had a lot to say and I would have gushed about it. And I think we collectively would have had a lot to say. And I'm not sure that we would have offered anything that you probably couldn't hear somewhere else. That's yeah, that's probably exactly right. Other than our voices and opinions that might also be similar to other people's. And so. No, nobody wants that. And I'm really glad you didn't pick Scream 3, which, you know, you know, I, I want at some point you to rank the Scream films for me. You can do it now or we can save it. What would you like to do? Let's OK, it. let's save it. So then instead, tell me uh, your history with this movie. Yeah. So uh, I had seen the first three screams um, like way back in the early 2000s and kind of when they were coming out. Um, I remember I loved Scream 1. Well, not love, but I really liked it. Um, and then I saw Scream 2 and 3. Didn't really remember a lot of it. Um, remember more of Scream 3. Watched this film for twice uh, in preparation for this podcast. And um, we will discuss it. I'd hope so. Yeah. I hope you have um, something prepared. But I, I should say two things. One, I should say uh, I, I've seen some, you know, most of the films in this franchise, not the reboot. Um, I don't, is there a Scream 4? I think there is, right? Yeah, there's a 4 and a 5. Get out of town. Um, Wait, you? oh, you haven't seen them? All right, well, then I don't want to, I don't really care what your ranking is then. I thought it went 1, 2, 3, 4 reboot. I didn't know there was a 5. Oh, 5 is the reboot. Okay. Yeah, but you just, you just asked, is there a Scream 4? Right, because... You're right, there is. Well, okay. (laughs) Well, Um, no, sorry. It's actually, no, I'm, no, I'm sorry. It's not a reboot. It's not. It's Scream 5. They just called it Scream for well, some right. dumb reason. That, that's what I'm saying. It's, yeah. But it, it's kind of rebooting the way they're like soft rebooting everything now. 
Oh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I watched this film. I think it should be noted just because it may color my opinion. I watched this film. Then Edgar and I watched Hereditary last night. Then I watched <laughs> this film again, or the majority of it this morning. Um, boy, does Hereditary leave a certain taste in your mouth that Scream does not. <laughs> that is a understatement of the year. And I would say that my experience is probably pretty similar to yours in that I was very much aware of this when it came out. I don't, well, I didn't see it right away. Cause I was, I don't know. I was a wee lad, but I remember when scream was out, like I, by that back then I was reading, I was consuming like as much like media as I possibly could about movies. Even if it was, there were movies I wasn't allowed to see. And like, I'd read magazines, like entertainment weekly and stuff like that. And I was like, so obsessed with, scream and like it was so popular at the time and I, I i couldn't wait to see it and i think sometime in the late 90s early 2000s i saw scream one scream two and then scream three pretty shortly after that and it's hmm go ahead but i'm just gonna say it was odd it's odd that i i revisit this series quite frequently not like every year but maybe every other year at least one well, I'll watch one and then I'll be like, well, now I got to watch two and then I'll watch three again because I'll be like, wait, is three actually really bad? Like really, really bad. Cause I think I had like a soft spot for three for a while. And then the next thing you know, I've just rewatched them all. And earlier this year, scream five came out. As I said, it was just titled scream. And I watched that and it got me to rewatch. So this is the second time this year I've watched scream two. Wow. Yeah. Which uh, I wouldn't wish on anyone. Two two things. One is the soft reboot Scream Five slash Scream worth people's time. Is that worth seeing? Yeah, I would. Well, okay. I'm just gonna do mine now because I, I think so. I think Scream One is the best. Obviously, I think Scream Four is next, but there's a pretty big gap between one and four. And after four, I would put five. And after five, I would put two, and then three. Interesting. I have, I think I may also have a soft spot for three, but it's been quite a while since I've seen it. I, I still kind of do, but when I rewatched it this year, I was like, Oh no, what have I been? I've been lying to myself for years. (laughs) Haven't we all? Yeah. And I would say in revisiting scream two, I think I have liked it less and less every time. Uh, And by that sounds overdramatic. It's not, it's like a minuscule amount of liking it less, but I think I really liked it. Not as much as one when I first saw it. And then over the last, I don't know, 20 years or more, it's just kind of, it's fine. I mean, it's not just fine. I mean, I, I I kind of enjoy it. Like I would watch it again. I, I think it's an above average movie and it has some good things about it. And, and maybe part of it is the draw for me is nostalgia, but I, I actually recommend scream Two, but I can't articulate why. Huh? So what I was going to say is I think the fact that these movies came out late 90s, early 2000s, for the most part, um, I think it contributes to kind of the mania around their success or their success in general, because I'm thinking this was, and we talked about this before directly related to Pokemon, but this was the time 1996 Pokemon had just come out and things in pop culture back then before social media were much more um, monolithic and far reaching. Would you say yeah. that's fair? Yeah. And I feel like Scream came out right in the middle of this and became like the slasher franchise. And to this day, I mean, the success of the soft reboot shows that like it's still around. It's still going. 
But I think a lot of the hype around, especially Scream 2, was because of the insane, massive hype that Scream 1 got. And I think no matter what, no matter how this film was created or marketed or sold, it was kind of always going to be lesser. Yeah. And we'll kind of, we'll get into that as, as we talk about the film. But I, I agree, this is absolutely a lesser film than Scream 1. Definitely. And I have to watch Scream 3 again to... <laughs> on my rankings have you seen i know what you did last summer which came out like which was trying to capitalize off the success of scream one see that's one of those things where i don't i don't remember which one came first oh it was definitely scream i know you did last summer wasn't trying to do the kind of things that the scream franchise does and and being like a meta parrot a meta satire of um the cliches of horror movies does but you do that though but we'll get into oh well yeah uh, it certainly likes to talk about how it's doing it, but it's not actually doing it as much as it thinks it is. Um, can you vamp about that for two seconds while I close the door to the room I'm in? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so instead of vamp about vamping, I wonder where the word vamp comes from, because is that what vampires are supposed to do? Because I don't think vampires waste time. Um, or maybe they do because they sleep a lot and they're immortal, so they probably get bored frequently. I'm sure what you're saying is is very interesting. It's about vampires. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. So, thank you. Um, should we get how into did, it? Yeah. How did we get? How did we get to this? Screaming once was not enough for people. They needed to scream again. <laughs> well, this was already kind of like in development. Like it seemed like it, when the first one was like just coming out before it was like fully successful. So this movie was written by Kellen, Kevin Williamson, the writer of the first one who, as I recall, he really hadn't done anything. And this was kind of like his big break. And when he pitched the first one, he wrote proposals for sequels when he sold the first one, hoping to kind of sell a franchise. I don't know how many of those ideas actually made it into Scream 2, but I'm guessing not a lot because... Well, was definitely right about making it a franchise, though. Oh, for sure. Um, but the schedule, the development schedule and the production schedule for this was extremely rushed. There were a lot of rewrites. Some scenes were filmed. The or finished the day that they were filmed. And there was a plot leak online, which revealed the identity killer of the killers. I don't know if they had ended up changing the identity of the killers because of that, or they just kept going with it. Do you know? One of the, I, I don't know the answer to that question, but one of the things I do know is that there was a lot of security. Um, yeah. About the secrets in this film. And none of the cast knew who the killer was until I think it's said the final week or final 10 days of filming. That's good. That's a cool way to shoot a movie. Yeah. Not let your cast know. Um, so Marco Beltrami, who I didn't look up at other things he's done, but I've heard I've seen that name so many times, did most of the music. But oddly, Danny Elfman and Hans Zimmer had pieces of music that were used in this. The most notable of which is a Hans Zimmer bit from the movie Broken Arrow, which was a, I think, a bombed John Woo action movie with. I think John Travolta. John Travolta, yeah. Yeah. This was pre-Face-Off, I think, or around the same time. It was before the Travolta-sance? No, I guess this is technically in the middle of what was supposed to be the Travolta-sance, because Pulp Fiction was like 94. True. Um, And I, I think I read that this was Dewey's theme, which is noticeably the oddest piece of scored music in this movie. Yeah, watching it again today, I noticed that when Dewey walks on, he has like, at least for some scenes, he has this weird kind of like westerny music kind of theme to him, and that must be it. Yeah. 
and I want to, we need to have a Dewey corner. Uh, when, when, when he shows up in the movie, We're I think we, we need to, we need to talk about him. Yeah. So, some other little tidbits, alternative titles that were considered scream again, scream louder, scream the sequel. Don't I, I actually scream louder is kind of cool, but then end up going with scream Two, which is, I guess, a safe pick. I like scream the scream quill. I think that you like that in hindsight. Now <laughs> that you know about the squeakle, the Alvin, the chipmunks movie. Oh God. How could I forget? <laughs> you can try. Um, so Wes Craven, I think that he had trouble with the MPAA during this first screen movie. I didn't go look that up because we're not talking about that fucking movie or the MPAA. I thought you were going to say, we're not talking about that fucking organization. No, well, I, movies. I think they tried to give that one an NC 17. So Wes Craven did something where he sent a more violent cut of the movie to the MPAA, hoping that they'd focus on things he didn't even want in the first place, like extra violent stuff that he was planning on cutting anyway. And then at the same time, he was hoping that by doing that, the MPAA would miss some of the things he wanted to keep in the movie. So I guess that worked. I don't know. I've heard that trick being used many times by directors. Yeah. And it just leads me to further believe that the MPAA shouldn't exist. Yeah. And well, definitely. This was also kind of like in the middle of, I mean, not the middle of it, but well, this is pre Columbine and 9-11 and 9-11. We're not just listing tragedies. I'm talking about like stuff that was accused of being influenced by violent movies. Were we, it was this pre or post um, Heaven's Gate cult suicide. Let's just throw that in there. This is also post World War II, if you're curious. (laughs) Yes, go on. Um, So so originally they were going to have Stu survive the events of Scream 1. We're going to spoil some things from Scream 1 because we have to. And be the killer here too. And then they scrapped that idea. And frankly, I think that would have been fun. I think either option is stupid, but we'll get to the one they picked. It, I mean, they're, they're both stupid, but at least in with, with Vied Stu survive, at least you got Matthew, Matthew Lillard in this movie, which would be an improvement. What is I got some thoughts on some some of the some of the cast. I well, OK, do you not like Matthew Lillard in the in the first scream? I think he's excellent. I, I just don't like him in general. OK. Uh, I think he's I think he's fine in Scream One. Um, I I just I'm not a huge little little I'm not a big Lillard head. You don't have to be a Lillard head to like him in that movie. And I I just I don't know I disagree. I think he's really really good in Scream One. He's going for it so hard and it works for me. Fair enough. So the movie was very successful at the box office. It was almost as successful as Scream, not not quite as much. Uh, Nev Campbell was praised for her performance. I think Nev Campbell is a very capable um, lead character for a horror franchise. I, for, she, yeah. She, yeah. For what she's asked to do on this, I think she does a, a good job. And apparently she is not returning for Scream 6 because I think, I guess she was in, offered an insulting amount of money to return. She's like, I am this franchise and and I and I make I'm making her sound like a diva. And I from what I read about it, it didn't sound like that was the case. It sounded like she was being extremely undervalued, which is unfortunate. Yeah, that makes me think of this is current to today, but the Bayonetta voice actress controversy. Do we yep. know about that? Yeah. yeah. I've been following that. I don't really know why I've been following that so closely. It's it's I interesting. I, I I guess it's more like I've been reading more about voice actors here and there in general, and I think that there's a big problem with voice actors being underpaid and that's a real shame yeah 
because it's such a talent. But anyway, so I, the reception was pretty good overall. But I, I read that some critics, like at the time, I don't, I don't know if anyone's actually bothered to go back and relitigate this. But some critics at the time were like, "This is just as good, if not better, than the original." And I think that is just a that take does not age well very much at all. Like, <laughs> uh, not not a great take, I would say. No, not one that no, not one that lasts twenty years after the twenty year yeah. mark. As we're we're hitting it, not the shine wears off. It sure does. And in terms of Dev Campbell and this franchise, and I might bring this up once or twice during the episode or three times or four times, the focus of Sydney is really interesting to me because when I go back and I rewatch Scream 1, the killers were Stumacher and Billy Loomis, who... This is like off the cuff, like preamble to our discussion of this movie. So correct me if I'm wrong about some of these plot points, but they murdered Sydney's mom, Maureen Prescott. Yes. And then a year later started murdering other people with, with the idea of torturing Sydney and then killing Sydney and framing someone, a cotton weary well, Cotton Weary was framed for... <clears throat> oh, for, for Maureen's killing. Yeah. And Stu and Billy were just like cuckoo bananas. Well, yeah, they're, they're both cuckoo bananas. Well, but, one of the, sorry, but one of the clever elements of Scream 1, sort of, is that they say, like, we don't need a reason to kill anyone. We're just like young psychopaths. Right. And I think that is so much creepier than yes. anything having to do with Sydney's mom, which is where I'm going with this. So all this franchise is about like what Sydney's mom did or did not do. And this mystique around Sydney's mom. And it's really stupid. It's really, <laughs> really stupid. It It's like all this writing of a, in a horror movie, all this dialogue, all these conversations being about someone we never meet once. That's kind of bad writing. Yeah. I mean, she's not the fucking emperor from Star Wars who we do also meet. Right. <laughs> but as we'll get into later on, there's plenty of talk about Sydney's mom in this movie. And especially, especially in Scream 3, it is all about what Sydney's mom did and who she was. And I just don't think that works for the franchise at all anymore. It's I think it's one of the weakest parts about Scream 1. I think the idea of Stu being one of the killers. And just, you know, to point out, there were two killers in Scream 1, and that's relevant for this because it kind of plays with your expectations. And that was kind of one of the unique, not that having two killers is anything new in a whodunit, but I think it worked very well, that reveal for Scream 1 and this movie. And I guess really all the other Scream movies play with that expectation. And I think Stu is the more interesting of the two killers in the first movie because exactly what you said, because he really had no motive except he likes scary movies and he's just no, yeah, no motive is scarier than a, than a motive. So, you know, take from that what you will, but we should get it. We should get into it. Yeah. 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 All right. So uh, we open on a theater and they're playing a sneak preview of the new movie Stab, 
which is based off the killings in Woodsboro. Um, are, are we like two years in the future, one and a half years in the future? I think it, it it's like a year or two. I think it might, or honestly, it might even be less than that, but I'm, I'm not sure. It, it's very, it's pretty soon after. Sydney's in college now. She's in college. But either way, fast turnaround time for a movie based off a book, based off of killings that happened like a year ago. But yeah, whatever. Gail Weathers is book based on the Woodsboro massacre. Correct. Yeah. Um, in line waiting are two characters, Phil and Maureen played by Omar Epps and Jada Pinkett Smith, respectively. Um, I'm just going to call her Jada and Omar. Well, uh, I, if you want Phil and I, 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 you, know, you, you can do whatever Phil you want. I mean, the, na- the names of the characters are, are important. They are. They're Phil and Maureen. Maureen for those listening closely is also the name of Sydney's mother, which we just talked about. We'll get to Phil. Um, so Maureen is not into scary movies, but Phil, uh, does not want to go to the Sandra Bullock down the street, uh, and tells her that horror and are good for you. Um, he says he would pay, he would, would only pay seven fifty for a Sandra Bullock movie if you see her naked. And she says that stab is just a dumbass white movie about some dumbass white girls getting their white asses cut the fuck up. Uh, yeah, in the notes, I said she calls out the racial disparities in horror cinema. Yeah. Um, and you said word for word what she said. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is two different ways of saying the same thing. Um, well, I thought, I thought it was, I like the line. Uh, it's worth saying for the reasons that you put in the outline, which is 100% yeah. correct. Which is, she calls out these racial disparities in horror movies, which this movie basically fails to respond to in any meaningful way. After yeah. bringing it up at the very beginning, I, I we go through the whole movie and we'll talk about it, but there's really no redressing. It's like they had a meeting after the first one. They're like, all right, guys, we we fucked up. There are literally no black people in Scream 1. How do we remedy this? Well, how about we have them call that out about horror movies and then also have three black characters, which will die without very much screen time? Yeah, that's <laughs> that, that feels like a very 1997 solution to that problem. It, yeah. Um, so the theater is handing out ghost face costumes to anyone seeing Stab, um, which most of the people in the theater are in costume. Also, great promo um, for a horror movie. Giving out yeah. the entire costume, that's pretty good. Yeah. Um, so we got actually a kind of fun recreation of the opening scene from Scream 1, but Heather Graham is playing the victim, much in the same way that Drew Barrymore played the victim who gets killed off. We get Heather Graham playing the meta character, also who gets killed off quickly in the film. Um, there, are, there are actually a couple of cameos in this, this movie that surprised me. Yeah. We got Selma Blair coming up later. It's crazy. Selma Blair? Oh, we'll get to it. Wait, where? We'll get to it. Okay, tell me where. We'll get to it, James. <laughs> okay, but tell me um, where when it comes. I, I will. I mean, because I don't know about anything about Selma Blair in this movie. Yeah. So, um, so Phil scares Maureen coming back from getting some popcorn. She she kind of gets mad at him. He then goes to the bathroom. Um, he hears someone whimpering in the next stall and is kind of curious. So he puts his ear next to the, the stall wall, um, and a knife comes through, stabbing him through the ear, the face, the brain. Um, we're not sure, but either way, he collapses to the floor. Um, it's someone in a ghost face mask with a knife. He's dead, by the way. <laughs> he's definitely dead. He, he doesn't some, just collapse. <laughs> he, he got some twitches in there, but he's definitely dead. Yeah. Uh, so the killer, now disguised as Phil, uh, but wearing the ghost face mask, returns to Maureen. She doesn't suspect anything. She thinks he's kind of being silly. Um, we get the scene from Stab continuing with Heather Graham. 
Um, Maureen looks back and notices that there's blood all over Phil, who is obviously not Phil, um, who then stabs her. She wanders around the theater, continuing to get stabbed, but nobody notices because everyone in the crowd is in the ghost face mask pretending to stab people. Um, she finally takes the stage in front of everyone, kind of wails and dies. Yeah. We cut to title, Scream 2. I, Let's talk about this opening. I think it's the best part of the movie. I think that there is a good buildup of tension, and it's it's neat how the opening of this movie runs kind of parallel to the opening of the stab movie. So like, you know, the height of the the killings happen and, and the, that opening scene happened with the height of the killings and the opening scene of this movie. And I mean, again, when I say like if there's good tension, like I, it, movies have come far, like it's not like the tension in this opening scene is anything close to the lingering tension in a movie like Hereditary. You know, no, of course not. Um, so but but it, it's still good. I mean, it's good for what it is. Yeah. I'll say we've talked about this because it's spooky, scary month. Um, but there's always that balance to me in horror movies between fun, like fun, campy horror and, you know, really kind of dark, gritty, intense horror. Yeah. And this is the height to me of fun. This is a fun opening. This is a fun scene. It's a little extra and ridiculous, but it makes sense that people would think that she was like cosplaying or not realize that she was getting killed. Like, I think this is a fun, clever way to start this film. Yeah, it's like a room-like screening. It, it, it'd be like yeah. if you were trying to go to a room screening dressed as Tommy Wiseau, and instead of spoons, you threw, like, knives at yeah. people in front of you, and it, it'd be easy to kill someone at a room screening. Or you the football is a bomb. <laughs> that might be a little bit less subtle, but I guess you could, you could put a bomb in anything. Yeah, I guess. So, but yeah, I think this is a, this is a good scene. I'm a fan of it. It's all downhill from here. It really is. It kind of <laughs> is. It's all downhill from here. But uh, go on. Um, so now we kind of got like our introduction to Sydney uh, on campus, and we very quickly start meeting some of the some of the characters from the from the old movie, from the first one. So Sydney's in college, Windsor College, and she's crank called, but has caller ID, and so she someone's trying to do the the killer voice, and she kind of scares them by having her caller ID and it's it's funny. It's a funny joke for 1997 when caller ID existed. Yeah. So she sees Cotton Weary on TV. Uh, as we mentioned, he was the original suspect of the rape and murder of Maureen Prescott. And so since he was having an affair with uh, with her and he was framed, proven innocent. And so now he's kind of Cotton in this movie is basically just looking for being proved innocent isn't really enough for him because he kind of got his name dragged through the mud, which we might literally say in the movie. He wants Sydney and other people to kind of give him his 50 or 15 seconds of fame. I thought you were going to say $15 of fame. 50 seconds, maybe. He wouldn't because settle for 15. He also wants more than $15 for his fame. Yeah. Well, that's true. He wants uh, Diane Sawyer, which was arguably priceless. Uh, yeah, I mean, rest in peace. Rest in peace. Yeah. Is she dead? No. Or maybe she could be right now and we don't know. Uh, would you mean like in the act of dying right now? <laughs> she could be. She could have died today. She could have died today. I'm not sure if she's dead. I'm not going to look it up. Rest in rest in life. <laughs> so Sydney sees uh, the news story about the murders on TV, the murders of Phil and Marine at the movie theater. And reporters are already on campus swarming her. 
And so we cut to film class where we get to see a lot of characters, some news, uh, one old. We have CeCe Cooper played by Sarah Michelle Gellar. This is a real who's who of the the mid to late 90s. Yeah. If you want some sexy 90s teens who are actually in their mid 20s, you get them here. Well, hold that thought because that doesn't really last longer than a couple more people I'm going to mention. Because <laughs> Jamie Kennedy is here. Uh, Randy Meeks. He is not a sexy teen uh, from the 90s. He is some other category. He's both a survivor of the events of the first movie and some would say a survivor of the 90s. Didn't make it to the 2010s. No, no. Have you seen um, Malibu's Most Wanted? No. Have you seen The Mask 2? <laughs> no. Uh, no, I have not. But I know he's in it. And so you could imagine he's not doing very well. I actually think he is now doing like exclusively movies for conservative, like ultra conservative production companies. That's a strange turn of events, but I'm also not surprised. Yeah. And then other sexy teens from the 90s, we got Joshua Jackson as a ran- random uh, student. No, no, not, no name, but he actually gets an interesting amount of dialogue for I, uh, a character who's not named. When I saw this, when I, I, I rewatched this the other day, I was like, wait a minute. Is he the killer? Like, is there something I'm missing? Why, yeah. why are they not commenting on Joshua Jackson being in the movie? And why is he no longer in the movie at all? Yeah. So last of all, we've got Mickey Altieri, who's played by Timothy Oliphant, who is and the actor in general, I would say, probably not not at his prime for sure at yeah. the time of this movie, but is a an actor I like. He's a I, yeah. And things I've seen him in more recently. I think he's a very good actor um, in this. Uh, I mean, arguably, he doesn't have a lot to work with, but no, the best. he really doesn't. He what he has to work with is the writer of the first movie trying to write a similar character to Stu, but failing. Yeah. And then his whole thing is about sequels and the movie tries to be clever about sequels, which also fails. It, it's not a really great recurring joke. So the students are arguing as to whether the stab movie is to blame for the most recent killings and the, the copycat killings uh, and also arguing about how sequels are usually always bad. And so Natch, that's Randy Meeks's point of view is that sequels are bad. And Timothy Oliphant just starts naming are they the whole class starts naming sequels. Yeah. And the only one, I mean, they mentioned like aliens and Godfather part two, and those are great examples of sequels that are very good. And then later I think, out, well, they leave out ghostbusters too. I think that was intentional. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> let's do that one next. Let's just oh, not, let's not do Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters too. Hell yeah. I haven't seen it in a long time. I, I could use a rewatch. So we're getting away from, from film class. We meet Sydney's new boyfriend, Derek, who was played by Jerry O'Connell, who I think is actually the right age, but looks to me older than every single person in this movie, including David Arquette. He does. Yeah. He has real like vague middle age face. Yeah. Like, like if you Google Jerry O'Connell now, if you put heavy putty on his face, he could reprise this role. <laughs> yeah. I was, I think you're right. But I think I, at the time when I first saw this, I mean, you know, when you're younger, I mean, everyone seems older and you kind of just buy whatever age they say people are at. I definitely thought Derek was not a college student. He was just some like 28 year old who was coming to campus and was just like hitting on Sydney. Well, like she's fair, dating a guy out of college. To be fair, he is in medical school, so he may be older than the rest. Of oh, them. you're right. Yeah. 
Wow, you're really paying attention to this movie. I, I'm so sorry I did. <laughs> Uh, so Gail Weathers has also come to campus, another survivor of the first movie. She is looking for a story, as she always is. Uh, we meet her and her new cameraman, which I wrote in the outline. It's clear he's going to die, but well, I forgot that he doesn't die. He doesn't die. And also you wrote, quote, clear he gonna die. And <laughs> but it's <laughs> I going to die. I, I, I remembered like about halfway through this movie. I didn't go back and I, I didn't change my, what I, my outline entry. I, I probably should not go and do this as I'm watching. Cause sometimes I don't go back and I, I don't fix things, but I realized about halfway through the movie that I was thinking about someone else. And I was also thinking about the cameraman who dies in the first movie. So I was wrong. <laughs> he does not die. So let's just bask in my mistakes. Yes. So local journalist Debbie Salt shows up. Please, please talk about the name Debbie Salt. Let's talk about it. The rest of the podcast about the name Debbie Salt. It is it is quite uh, a reach for an attempt at a. I want to say and it was an attempt at a cool sounding name, which is sounds ridiculous coming out of my mouth. It's kind of, I mean, it works in a meta way because it's a terrible fake name for a movie character. So terrible. It's, it's a terrible fake name, which we'll get to. Yeah. So she's, she's fangirling out on Gail. Gail is very rude to her in response. And I guess that's kind of relevant. Um, Debbie Salt's you know, just looking for her scoop, I guess. The and then the some. Hmm. She's the salt of the earth. Yeah. No, <laughs> she's not. <laughs> So the local authorities call the movie theater killings an isolated incident, which obviously we know it isn't. And it's just a, you know, I, I actually wish that this movie had gone out of its way to satirize or at least just call out the cliche of inept local authorities in horror movies. Does Dewey not count as that? We'll get to that. Technically, Dewey is a Dewey. Just he's not the local authority. He just no. is like a freelance guy who's showing showing up to try it because he's concerned about Sydney. But more on that in a second. So Sydney and company look on as as Gail talks to the authorities. You can tell that Mickey loves movies because he's holding a fucking hand camera and filming things. And this is the only time he does it. It's a, such a clear like. Well, maybe not the only time, but it. He has a camera with him a couple other times, but it's just. The movie's clearly being like, hey, this guy likes movies. He films things. He walks around with the camera. Yeah, he's it's it's very I mean, this is a horror movie. So we're going to get like 27 characters, both for red herrings and for victims. And they're all really paper thin. Yeah. So you see Mickey, he likes movies. He holds <clears throat> a camera. He's the guy that likes movies. Yeah. So Sydney sees Dewey. Dewey is on campus. And and OK. <laughs> So we get that ridiculous Hans Zimmer broken arrow music for Dewey. It literally looks the very first time we see Dewey, he looks like he he is about to run into a tree. <laughs> yes. And so I, what I want to do is talk very briefly about Dewey in the, in the previous movie and in this one. Is Dewey supposed to be fill in the blank? What's the right word for this? I'm not I've, I forget what the actual word is. So, well, they, they say several things because he quotes Gail in her book where she calls him dim witted. Yeah. 
Which he, like, I think he's supposed to be, and he gets compared to Barney Fife in Game yeah. of the Book, which, like, yes. He's, yeah. He's like the 1997 Barney Fife, and he, I, like, is, I don't know how to say this without sounding insulting to certain groups of people. That's what I was trying to navigate to. Yeah, but is Dewey not playing with a full deck here? He's not. And I, also, too, I understand he's, he's injured from his previous injuries in Scream 1. Yeah, but his head isn't. Yes, his head isn't. But also the way they have him move, I don't, I don't know if this was a Wes Craven decision. I don't know if this was, a, this was a David Arquette decision. But the way they have Dewey like limping and it's in, It's kind of insulting to certain groups of people. It's kind of insulting. It's both his mental faculties don't seem to be fully there. And physically, he's not fully there. He just seems like he's a big 13-year-old kid who got like injured in a car accident and somehow he's responsible for these people who mentally are much <laughs> it, it it is like he's you know like when like in in movies when someone gets into a car accident and they walk away from the wreckage they like yeah. get out of their car yeah. but it, it's like he's yeah. doing that for an entire that, franchise. Yes. That is like the note he was given. Looks he's, like you're yeah. away from a car crash. He's permanently in that state for for all the movies. And well, that's not true. Not the, not the most recent one. He's in the most recent one and he's actually kind of fun and interesting in it. But and I think they realized that and they, what, what they, what they fucked up and they started dialing it back because whatever notes he was given, they were not good notes and whatever Ken Williamson had in mind for what, whether or not Dewey is playing with a full deck, it doesn't work. And if they're going for, he's just a little dim witted, but he's like, He's just, he means well. And he, I, I don't know if they, they really succeed. I think they're pretty insulting. I don't understand. The other thing too is if you excised Dewey from this film entirely, would it matter? And I think the answer is no. No, but I'm going to tell you something. I like Dewey. I like Dewey too. Don't get okay. me wrong. I like Dewey. I like the Dewey Gale thing going on. As yeah. stupid as that is, but I kind of like it. I, I, I wonder if Dewey exists because of test audiences. Yes, I think that's exactly why he exists. Well, or I mean, maybe not because of test audience specifically, but because, well, because audiences were, like liked him a lot in the first one and they wanted to have someone who isn't Sydney that you can really kind of root for. No, is not the killer. And like, you can root for Gail too, but Gail's kind of a B. Well, but also Gail, Gail has a, a couple of red herring, red flag moments. And I think the movie wants you to maybe think it's Gail at some point. Which I think fails completely. And I'm not just saying that because I have seen this movie before. I know what, what happens. I, I don't think I ever suspected her in a million years when I first saw this movie. No, but I mean, they in a movie like this, you kind of have to suspect everyone except for like one person. And they specifically say that <laughs> later in the movie. Um, but anyway, yeah, I'm so glad you like you like Dewey. I just think that. Dewey in execution is kind of a failure by on the part of the writing and directing and maybe David Arquette. Well, but also like what's so weird to me is that Dewey might be the most realistic element of this franchise. Yeah. What I mean by what I mean by that is like in a horrific event like this in real life, I could picture there just being a dim witted 'er ne'er-do-all who kind of tags along. Yeah. I can see that actually being a thing in real life. Whereas in a movie, you would pitch it and they'd be like, no, 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 get that guy out of there. And it's very sweet because he came all the way there because he's worried about Sydney, And he's a very kind person. Like, I don't 
think he necessarily came because of Gale. He came for Sydney. He did. Yeah, he did come for. Sydney. And he says he's going to get, uh, you know, that or that the, the killer or killers are people already in her life because that's what they get off on. And he's not wrong. And he's like. There are moments of like little facial ticks or just little like like minor bits of acting that Dewey does that I actually do like. He like fidgets and he's like he's very he's like looking over his shoulder a lot, which I think is pretty. I've never gone through a traumatic event like he did surviving a, a you know, a mass killing like that or a, a, a serial killer. But I would imagine that's probably pretty common. And so when you get up close and you see what Dewey's doing, I think David Arquette actually does a pretty decent job with this. But I think the bigger picture notes of like, hey, yeah, like we said, play like you just walked away from a car wreckage like that does not work. No. Um, so Gail and Cotton ambush Sydney to try to get her to comment on the new news about the killings. Uh, Sydney slaps Gail because Gail is prioritizing her story first and foremost. And Dewey tells Gail to leave Sydney alone. Dewey's annoyed with how she portrayed him in the book, like you mentioned. And the Dewey gale dialogue and it, so i think they have the the writing is bad but the chemistry is good and i think at the time these two were married or going to be married soon and regardless of that i think they have good chemistry and not just because of like the music cues that are clearly like guiding you to become emotionally involved with them i think even if there was no music they would be charming together there are two people who clearly uh, like each other. Uh, and as we said, that was the case in real life. And I think it translates. Yeah. Anything else? Uh, no, we'll get some more doing business later. Okay. Um, but Sydney has been invited to her sorority party with her roommate, Haley. So they go to the party. Sydney is not really feeling comfortable being there. Um, I put in my notes, I guess she's a GDI. Um, is that a term that everyone would know or is that only a university of Illinois term? I don't think I know what GDI stands for. You don't know GDI. I only know GDI because we had friends visit from university of Illinois and call people that GDI stands for goddamn independent. Oh, not in frats or sororities. Oh, I'm, I'm not familiar with that term at all. Well, it's probably because you weren't a friend. You got called one. I was not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we get a young Portia de Rossi playing one of the sorority sisters, which is a fun, like watching this. I was like, Oh, I, I, I completely forgot that was Portia de Rossi. And you're reminded that Portia de Rossi is really only capable of doing one type of acting. Yeah, pretty much. She plays like an, she plays the airheaded kind of comedy relief sorority sister. Yeah. A, a line she has that I really like is hi. No, I really mean that. Hi. Mm-hmm. Uh, just think that's so funny yeah um so she's there sydney's not fitting in we cut to the um omega beta kappa house i just put obc because that's what the letters look like i think kappa is a k whatever um sarah michelle geller um her name is cc in the film i just call her sarah michelle geller has been left alone and she is the sober sister so she is chatting on the phone with one of her friends and fun fact the voice on the phone with her is selma blair i did not know that that what a what a cruel intentions reference. I thought you were just going to leave it at what a cruel intention. And that would have been great. And you had to ruin it by adding reference. So, sorry. Um, 
What a cruel intention by someone with fire. Um, so uh, the murderer calls Cece um, and begins toying with her. She has to let Selma Blair go. She thinks it's her boyfriend who's drunk. Um, she's freaked out, understandably. She leaves the house and tries to call campus security. Um, however, the phone's range is too low. Damn you, cordless phones. This movie was like right in the pocket for we're on cordless phones. We are, we're not at cell phones. <laughs> widespread yet this is the hallway this is the lane where cordless phones make their their ascendancy and the cordless phone has failed did you see what movie she was watching no i did not she's watching nosferatu oh okay i knew it was something in black and white yeah um we get a little scare where donnie one of the other sisters is still in the house um she was changing for the party so it's not the killer um however after donnie leaves a chase with the killer through the sorority house begins one of the things that I like about the screen films versus other slasher films is in the screen films, the killers are typically very clumsy. Yeah. Falling over furniture and shit, which to me feels very real um, and heightens the tension because it's one of those things where like CC's running, the killer kind of like dives over a chair and falls, but like almost grabs her ankle. Um, I think it makes for, for tense scares. Yeah. Um, the killer winds up stabbing Cece and throwing her off the building, killing her. I want to dissect that little like chase sequence just for a second. Cause the, the, yeah. they do something that the scream franchise kind of has done repeatedly. They're repeating a little bit of the beats of the first one. So when Cece is talking to her sorority sister, we see the killer enter the house in the background, yes. not in focus, I think. And I just curious, do you think that's more or less effective than not showing the killer's movements at all? I think it's more effective. I think also, too, if you're looking at this as a popcorn horror movie, it gives people more things to kind of scream and scream about. That's exactly what I was going to say, is that I think that generally not showing killer's movements is more effective because you have you don't know where they are. But for a, for the purposes of a popcorn movie where you can have something to yell at the screen about that it's definitely more effective for that purpose they do that kind of whole like what's behind this door the music swells and then there's a fake out type thing you know you move the door and there's nobody there and then you're just kind of waiting for the for the jump scare you like he calls cc she says hello and then immediately jumps the killer jumps out yeah and yeah it's 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 interesting like so what the, the only other thing I was going to mention is, and I think this, I don't know if this is the only time they do it, but they definitely do it in the in the first movie when the, and I, this is a, this is an interesting thing. I think it's just a Wes Craven touch. I'm guessing that I, I like where before someone is killed, usually before like the killer even calls the camera is moved as if from the perspective of the killer moving through the house, yes. observing their victim. And I think that is really neat. And Every time I watch it, I'm like, could it be the killer? But I don't think it actually could be. In many cases, it's just like the angle doesn't work or there's no window where there where there would have to be one, things like that. But either way, I think it's it's effective from a from a filmmaking perspective. Yeah, I think it's working from a meta perspective. Also, small side note, rewatching Hereditary, I noticed a couple of those shots and I was like, oh, I'd never noticed those before. Such a masterpiece. Also, I noticed, sorry, this is going to go into uh, Hereditary Corner for a second. I think I only, for the first time this viewing, um, realized that Steve is her manager. Oh. I didn't. Oh, wait, yeah. That would explain why he's so 
damn obnoxious Obs- to her about, about her like show. her deadlines and her all that shit. Yeah. And then two, all the little post-it notes that are like, keep working. I thought that she had written those to herself. I think Steve wrote those to her. Oh yeah. You might be right. Which puts a, a whole other level of tension in their relationship, which I appreciated this viewing. Yeah. We can discuss more when we do it for our 100th episode. We just do it again. We just do it. We're actually going to repeat every episode again. <laughs> so get ready. We're Yeah, we're going to go back and do a transcript of our hereditary episode and repeat it word for word, but with less emotion. Yes. But anyway, that was hereditary corner for a second. Back in Scream 2-ville, um, we're at the frat party, or I'm sorry, sorority party. And we get Jerry O'Connell. Um, I just made the note here being the boring, supportive boyfriend, um, because that's really all Jerry O'Connell gets. The Well, I mean, a very minor, a little bit more, but essentially his character exists to be a red herring. Um, so we just get him being boring and nice, because in the back of your mind, you're supposed to think, could he be the killer? And, and th- um, for what you're about to describe, like the next like couple minutes of the movie, the movie is so blatantly starting out by casting false doubt on... Derek and continuing to and continue like continuing to. And as a first time watcher of like, when I was like 12 years old or whenever, however old I was when this, when I saw this, I definitely was like, Oh, Derek could be the killer. But like, then you watch it now with all the knowledge you have, all the slashers you've seen, you're like, this is the most painfully obvious red herring. Yeah. move. And, and even for like, I mean, a lot, there's a lot of that in, in whodunits, but this is, pretty bad we could have you could have given him one negative character trait like maybe he gets really angry easily or something um but making him too perfect it's it's just too on the nose and yeah you're right it's like there's no way he's the killer because they're trying to make him seem like the killer. but they did give him a negative character trait he's absolutely awful at singing <laughs> that's true also he very feels very comfortable publicly humiliating his significant other. And that's never cool. That's never yeah. cool. Don't do that. No, no. Um, so then we cut back to the sorority. Um, Debbie Salt is there getting the scoop. Uh, I mentioned that because I love her line. As she walks away, she goes, right. So it's definitely not suicide. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think we kind of know that, Debbie. Um, yeah. I, 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 that's a very funny line to me. Would you say Debbie Salt is up there in one of your favorite character names of all time? Actually, yes. I love Debbie Salt. Also, now it's making me wonder what Deborah in the Bible did. Do you know Deborah? She's It's a biblical name. I don't really know the story of Deborah, though. I don't remember the story of Deborah either, but I do know it's biblical. Because Salt makes me think of Sodom and Gomorrah and, like, you know, the evils of the world. And so I wonder what Deborah has to do with it. It doesn't take much to get you thinking of the evils in the world. Or the Bible. Or the Bible. Um, so we have Gail and Dewey. Uh, they they have a little conversation. Um, Dewey is mad about Gail's past with Westboro. Um, this, that's kind of the running theme for them throughout the film. Um, Gail's cameraman has second thoughts about being there. Uh, we'll get to more about the cameraman later, but the cameraman is black. Um, and we had this opening with black individuals talking about black people in white cinema and horror cinema. Um, and some kind of, you know, opportunity to reconcile. Do they do anything with that with the cameraman? No, no, not really. Um, we have Sydney going back into the sorority to get her coat, which is like, just bring Derek with you. Come on. Seriously. Um, she hears the phone ringing and very stupidly, she picks it up. Of course, it's the killer. 
Um, and very significantly, the killer shows up right behind her. So this is the first clue the movie kind of gives you that there have to be two killers, right? Because there's no way the killer was on the phone and then right next to her in the sorority house, unless the killer has a cell phone, which please. I think, I think the killer does have a cell phone. I, I think that this, um, I forget, I'm, I'm already forgetting that there, there was some, like, knowing now who the killers are and we'll say them later, but I think there is a confirmation that one of the killers is somewhere else. Like that it can't be here. every time i go back and i rewatch these movies i'm like okay who is it now who's the killer right in in, in this scene who's the killer in this scene and i don't yeah yeah you could yeah i mean there's i can think of a way around it without cell phones but this is yeah this is my first clue that there must be two killers and and maybe i don't know how much thought and care they that the screenwriters and director like put into that because they very clearly did not care about making it seem like Stu in the first movie was able to put like a 300 pound cameraman on top of a van after he was killed by himself when Billy was upstairs with Sydney. So that's unrealistic. They probably don't care. Maybe I'm thinking too much and looking too much into it, but I don't know. Um, I don't know either. My but, my, uh, my takeaway from from this though, this this moment is it, it's insane how the killer decided to attack Sydney. This is so public. There, like everyone is right outside. Yeah, yeah. Also, I I've been to a sorority house or two in my day, and there's usually like five doors on the first floor that lead outside. Yeah, like it seems like it would be very easy to get out, but that's just me. Um, so they chase through the house again. We get kind of a fun chase where the killer is like falling over stuff. Um, Sydney finds Derek and Dewey. Um, however, they get separated. Um, Derek does find his way inside the house. Um, Derek luckily just gets slashed by the killer on his arm. It's a very superficial wound. He's not dying, nothing like that. Um, and so we cut to the hospital. Um, where everyone is being interrogated. Uh, Mickey tells his girlfriend Haley that it was the easiest interrogation in my crime-filled life. Wait, Mickey's dating Haley? Yes. I don't think I ever realized that. Yeah, Probably because they don't give like any anything to the character of Haley at all. No, not at all. But I think she says, hey, babe, I'm getting a coffee. Do you want one? And he's like, no. Um, Implying that they're together. Hmm. Uh, Mickey comforts Sydney um, and he kind of plants the seed of doubt in her mind about Derek um, and says, you know, wow, really lucky that he was there. Really lucky that he didn't get badly hurt. Yeah. Um, we cut to Derek. We're calling his story with the police. They also find him suspicious. And Dewey also calls him out on this. He says, yeah, it's pretty convenient that you just got cut and the killer ran away before you caught him. Um, Derek pushes back on this because of course he fucking would, because I would because I'd be like, guys, I'm yeah. going to chase this. Like, that's your job. You're the police. I'm not doing this. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So they kind of have a little like powwow, the police and maybe I think Gail's there too. And they, they find out that CeCe's real name is Casey. And so it becomes clear to them, given that her real name is Casey and there was a Marine that the killer is targeting people with the same names as the Woodsboro victims. Oh, I'm sorry. It's Phil's last name because Phil is Steven. Phil Stevens. Yeah, that's it. It's not Phil. There's no Phil in Scream One. That's true. And so now Sydney is being followed by cops for protection. She tells Derek 
you know, you might want to stay away from me for your own safety. And there's, you know, he seems genuinely like upset by this. Like at at this point, I feel like it's, it's like Derek's not the killer. Come on. Also at this point, I'm like, Jerry O'Connell, you gave up sliders for this. Really? What are you doing? (laughs) He left sliders for his film career. Oh, oh, oh yeah, of course. Um, We get a little bit more. Dale and Dewey, yeah, Dale and Dewey, Gale and Dewey chemistry, Duel. which Dual? No, it doesn't Gooey. work. Gooey. Gooey. And we got more Debbie. Debbie. The name Debbie Saul is just so so <laughs> stupid. So I, hate, I don't like every time. Every time that she appears in the outline, either of us have to say her full name. Debbie, Debbie Saul. Well, I mean, yeah. I, I, you notice I never wrote just debbie i think in the entire outline oh i did i'm so sorry about that i i do also very much appreciate the name debbie salt and how stupid it is um so debbie salt is following gail around again trying to get a story she theorizes the killer might be someone from woodsboro theorizes debbie salt debbie salt debbie salt theorizes that the killer might be someone from woodsboro yes how would she know so Derek's there's a scene in the cafeteria where Derek starts singing to Sydney about how much he loves her. Um, he's really bad at singing. And <laughs> I guess I like that they kept this in because I think it's more realistic than if he was to be outstanding at singing. Yeah, I would say that's fair. Also, it would be very strange because it would turn into a weird musical scene if he start, suddenly was able to sing in tune. I think this movie could use a all the students get up and in unison sing the same song in a choreographed dance. I have to be brutally honest with you. I, the first time I watched this, had to take a break after the first hour and came back because it was so boring to me. And I forgot that this happened. It, this is possibly the worst part of the entire movie because the, the music that plays at the end of the scene is like you, you would uh, if you walked into this movie in this scene you would think you walked into like a 10 things I hate about you movie. Yeah, like it, yes, that's it, a very good comparison. It, and, and I get that like the movie, um, it's not like a horror movie has to be like relentlessly somber, but I just think this is going for like a tonal shift, like a brief tonal shift in, in an attempt to like make more of Sydney and Derek's relationship. And it does not work at all. No, it doesn't work. So especially because she's already so closed off to him. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And he plus he looks like he's 20 years older than her. Yeah. So I'm just going to say, if I didn't already say it, that I, I don't like Jamie Kennedy's face at all. I, I actually, I, I think he's really good in, uh, well, good for what he's needed to do in Scream. But his look in this is such a 90s, like, rap rock, like Limp Biscuit look or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And I hate it so much. His little like tiny little beard scruff, but with no mustache at all. It's it it looks awful. But and I don't really I don't really like Randy in this movie at all. I I I liked him in the first one. He's just doing more of the same shit in this movie, but in a more annoying way. So I kind of like what's about to happen um, in a little bit. So there's a scene with him and Dewey where Randy is explaining who the killer might be. He says the killer might be someone that Sydney knows and the killer is trying to break new ground. And so it can't be Derek because that's too obvious. I like that. I like that they say that at this point. It doesn't mean that doubt is cast away from Derek, but I like that they're calling out that 
the audience either is, might suspect Derek because the movie's trying to make you think that way, or it could be calling out that the movie is purposely trying to overemphasize Derek as its own. Is Maybe it, I'm giving the movie too too much credit. Though. I think you are. Because I probably is am. That, is that the movie being self like winking at itself? Or is that like the movie and the scriptwriter patching over their own holes with Derek's mischaracterization? You're probably right. It's the latter. So Gail's cameraman is very scared and wants to leave. And that's basically the gist of his character is he just constantly says, I'm not doing this shit. Um, But she convinces him to stay for now. And we get a cut to Sydney in her acting class. This is another scene that I hate. I basically hate everything that everything that happens in the auditorium, I think, is pretty bad, which is unfortunate because the entire end of the movie takes place there. Can we can we just camp on the idea that Sydney has been cast as a star? First of all, she's a freshman, probably. But let's just say she was. She gets cast as the star in this play. And it involves a scene with people in masks with knives running around like pretending in an acting way to stab her. Yeah. Whoever the director is, is a sadistic fuck. The director is played by one and only David Warner, who yeah. has one of the most recognizable voices if you're a fan of Batman the Animated Series. He is the voice oh, of Ra's al Ghul. Detective. Raish al Ghul. Raish al Ghul. And it's just a weird, he's a weird place in this movie. I don't, I don't, it's a weird scene about how she's like afraid and how he's like, show me the real you or some of that bullshit acting teacher stuff. So they start rehearsing this play. And like the, the, the play is the kind of what you what you described. It's like but the, the scene itself has a, has very big. This set piece will become relevant later. Yes. Energy. Like we we didn't spend the budget on this to have it not show up. again. Right. There's like the camera is focused on some of the props and like the 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 general layout of the stage, which is and the set that's there, which is like this very like I don't know, what it's like a temple ancient greek temple. ancient greek temple kind of thing and there's these like chanting cloaked masked people there's thunder rumbling and sydney starts freaking out a little bit um she was doing really well she was keeping it together and then she freaks out and she thinks she sees Ghostface among the other masked cast members i don't think Ghostface actually is there in this scene i think that this is her but they do suggest i believe i believe that Ghostface was there but that's me okay um, so Derek shows up, she kind of runs away panicked and she's like, where's Mickey? And he says he swapped with Mickey because Mickey had to edit. Which he's a film student, because he's a film student. Um, either way, I, you know, this is, this is a moment where I guess the movie is just like, okay, is it Derek? Is it Mickey? What's going on? So yeah. So Sydney's freaked out. And so we cut to the group of Randy, Gale and Dewey in the middle of the day, kind of like on the on the campus quad. Um, it's, I think it's important to know some of the scenes that take place during the day and at night, because most of the scenes, I feel like most of the movie takes place during the day. But but like, I'm glad that there's like a good there's a killing during the day. You know, you don't get enough of those daytime killings. Midsummer was uh, just really rang that bell. It really did. This was my number one criteria for horror movies is daytime killings. It's not. That's actually. Not I do like terrible. it. I was gonna say that's not a terrible criteria. I I do like it a lot. Um, Can we when, have um, what is it? The Becknell test? Can it be the daylight killing test? The Becknell test? Yeah, the daylight killing test. It, yeah. <laughs> sounds like daylight saving time. Savings time. So 
Randy makes a comment about how there were these nude pictures of Gail leaked on the internet. And I think this is a funny of the timeline where she says it was just her head and the body was Jennifer Aniston's. Because for anyone who doesn't know, Courtney Cox was in the middle of Friends at this time. This is like the height of Friends fame. Yeah. Yeah. So the killer calls Randy and makes it clear that he can see all of them together. And so Randy tries to keep the killer talking while Gail and Dewey go looking for the killer. They're basically trying to find all the people on the quad who have a phone, which is like no people because it's 1997. <laughs> um, Randy starts arguing with the killer. He, he insults them. He says Stu and Billy from the first movie uh, were way more original. The killer hurls these very predictable insults at Randy, calling him a geek, saying he'll never get the girl, you know, <sighs> whatever it's just it's bad dialogue it'd be better if the killer was i actually think that the, the better lines are like have you ever felt a knife scraped scrape your bone like that's better than like you're a dweeb <laughs> i think the ultimate insult would be you're jamie kennedy that's true and your career <laughs> will go nowhere yes and so randy is like at this point standing in front of gail's news van in the middle uh and like in the middle of an insult to Stu, and also especially an insult hurled at billy loomis who he calls a mama's boy the killer suddenly opens the door to the van pulls randy in and kills him as when i was one shot of blood dripping down off the door yeah and when i was younger and had not seen many horror movies this like genuinely terrified me Number one, because I was like, wait, murders can happen in the day. <laughs> you know what? They uh, can. And the other was just that I really did not see that coming at all. So I thought it was I mean, it's it's very predictable now, not just like because, you know, it. But if you've seen enough movies, it's not too hard to, like, guess where the killer might be based on the framing of like how he passes the van and stuff. But at the time, I thought it was pretty, pretty scary. I so before we start really getting to the to the the last like dash towards the end of the movie. Um, Cause I think there's really only one more night that the movie covers. So. Right. Yeah. So Sid- Sydney's confronted in the school library by cotton. And like before he shows up, she's on a computer. They're all connected to the same network. And she, re- she receives an instant message on the computer saying that she's going to die. So tonight. if I may jump in, uh, like course. I said, I, I like to watch these movies on Amazon uh, because Amazon gives you the actors when you hit pause and, and the trivia the facts. And I don't know why Amazon felt this was relevant, but this is a quote unquote trivia fact. Uh, the, to read the message, you're supposed to hit control M. This is real. This is a trivia fact. Sydney hits control M twice. That's, that's the Amazon trivia <laughs> fact for that scene. I, you know what? I, I do like that. Thank, thank goodness for Amazon. I, I watched this on, I think it was on Peacock. And I think I got access to a Peacock account. So I was able to watch it not on amazon anyway go on so cotton confronts her and uh, says that you know diane sawyer is going to pay them both for an exclusive interview sydney says she doesn't want press she doesn't have time for this shit but cotton is clearly desperate for fame exposure wanting people to know the truth about how he's innocent he's kind of understandably mad i mean i wouldn't pick this as a bad time to be pressuring sydney now that she's like got a killer after her but in general i understand why he's mad i mean he was wrongly accused of murder and rape yeah he yeah he does come off as a dick though yeah and again this is big red herring energy they want you to think that <clears throat> would have a reason to hurt sydney yeah 
So Cotton is taken into custody by the police. The police realize they can't hold him, though. And the next thing really that happens is Gail's cameraman was like, you know, I'm done. Daytime killings, not for me. He doesn't say that, but that's really the trigger. He's like, I'm in. Let's do this. And then Randy gets killed in broad daylight in the van. He's like, nope, I'm out. I'm skipping town. So. All right. Um, so we get Gail. She's ambushed by reporters outside of, is this the library or the police station? I can't remember. Um, eh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, Debbie Salt asks how Gail's holding up. Debbie fucking Salt. Um, Gail I, and Dewey I talk. love Debbie Salt so much. <laughs> I, I, I want to name my firstborn Debbie Salt. <laughs> um, so Gail and Dewey talk. Um, Gail at this point She's genuinely feeling bad and she does want to find the killer. It's not about her anymore. Um, Dewey still kind of resents her for everything that's happened before, but you can tell they're definitely warming up to each other. Um, Gail gets the idea to rewatch the old crime scene videos, thinking that the killer will, will be in them kind of relishing his kills, kind of gloating um, killers, you know, sometimes return to the scene of the crime. So that's where, where they're going to kind of look for him. They go to the college film school, which I'm like, really, you guys, you're on a college campus and the only VCR you can find is the film school. Yeah. No one owns a VCR. You can't go to Sydney's house, but whatever. Um, And so we get more Gail and Dewey chemistry. They watch the videos, but they don't really see anything useful from them. Um, They start making out. I forgot this happened because I didn't care. (laughs) Um, But this happened. (laughs) I, I like this whole scene, actually. I know I said it was I downhill from the from the opening scene, but I, I like this this part. Again, I, I had to take a break in the middle of this movie for like an hour and then I came back to it and I'm like, oh, God, it sounds like you movie. took multi hour breaks multiple times. I'm you know what I may have. I can't I can't um, fault you for it. I'm just saying. <laughs> so another TV starts playing footage taken by the killer of the first few kills. So my question is how did the killer know that they would go to that open lecture hall to start playing that footage on another TV? We'll get to, we'll get to that. There is, I mean, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll wait till you, till you let me know so when I can go off on that. Then it cuts to live footage of Gail and Dewey in the lecture hall. So the killer presumably would have to know that they would choose that lecture hall have film equipment set up to film them while they're watching other film that he's feeding them while they're looking for the like footage of the killer in the film that they got that they chose to watch in this lecture hall and nowhere else. There's no way on earth that the killer could have pulled this off. Not a chance in hell. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to be like a scream Two historian i'm not going to go and watch this movie a bunch of times to prove that there's no way the killer could have physically done this or even overheard the fact that they're going to go to the to check the footage i it's not about that it's not like how would the killer know well i guess it is about that yeah but how could how could they have set this all up that quickly I mean, the only way is that they already set all of it up and it just so happens that they chose that lecture hall. I would like That's to see it. I want to see a movie from either like the killer's perspective or like just the villain's perspective where they set up like a thousand different things, like kind of like, haha, you fell into my trap. But they actually have 20 traps because they didn't know where the person's actually going to go. Well, that's like the Dark Knight Rises thing with the flammable Batman. <laughs> yeah. It's like, how long did you spend doing that? Yeah. How did no one see you? And why would you waste your time? Time was of the I essence. Know. Gotham, the clock is ticking. 
We should do The Dark Knight Rises. I have a lot to say about that movie. I would, you know what? Let's pen that in because I would love to do Dark Knight Rises. I, I, I actually think I, I know of, of a, a good guest we could have for that episode if we wanted to do a guest. And it's someone who I think will defend that movie while also acknowledging its faults. And I think I will not defend it. I'm pr- basically done defending that that movie. Yeah, I um, I well, we saw it together and I had some strong opinions yeah. on the first night. And then I've softened my tone on it. And then I watched again and been like, oh, I don't know. And so now I'm up for, I don't know, like the 10th rewatch of it. Okay. My yeah, I'm about are that balanced, too. Are balanced on the edge of a knife. It could go either. <laughs> I think I walked out of the movie like that was the best Batman movie I've ever seen. And then the next you day I, I was like, what have I done? Yeah. Maybe not the next day. I was very, very high on it for a while, but yeah, that, we'll save that for the actual episode. <laughs> So anyway, back to our friends, Gail and Dewey, um, Gail, or I'm sorry, Dewey stupidly goes after the killer. Uh, however, he can't find the killer. So the killer goes after Gail. She was running down the hallway, trying to find a place to hide, but all the doors are locked. She goes into a room that is unlocked, uh, that features a locking door. And she proceeds to go through three doors that have locks on them and chooses not to lock them. <laughs> now, I know what you're thinking, but Aaron, she doesn't have the keys. I know that. But I'm talking about the little knob locks because yep. I paused and checked. They all have the little knob locks, except for the fourth door that she goes through, which does not feature them. I've got the so same note. <laughs> you're you're absolutely right. <laughs> that she does not lock. Yep. So then um, she is in a recording studio. Gail hides from the killer. And what I have to imagine is the most impractical acoustic setup in history. There are this just these walls of acoustic. What would you even call them? Like foam or dampeners? Yeah, it, it's yeah, it's um, it's just I, I, there's a there's a name for it, but I can't. But yeah, it's it's like soundproofing. Foam. Unless you're recording an album where the concept is you're lost in hallways, I don't think you would ever need that stuff. <laughs> right? I mean, you do need that stuff on walls and record. I mean, that's all, that stuff's usually yeah. common in recording studios. In recording studios, but like on the wall in that weird, random, like haunted house wall setups of them yeah but uh do we find gail in the recording studio but he can't get her attention even by banging on the window so this isn't vibranium if you bang on soundproof glass you can still feel the vibrations and there's still a bang that gets through them yeah they're it's not like they're in space they're not in space no that'd be great Um, though if they were scream 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 (laughs) six in space um the killer stabs dewey um but don't worry dewey lives because he's david arquette uh, is, that, is, is that supposed to explain why he lives i think because david arquette was a star at the time also the killer could have like slit his throat and doesn't that's true it's very weird that he doesn't die here very stupid of the killer the killer stabs him one time and he's fine um the killer tries to get a kill but she is safe um in the recording room and so the killer has to leave um, we cut to Derek comforting Sydney, uh, but Haley goes home with her instead. Um, Derek is ambushed by his frat bros who punish him for giving his frat letters to Sydney earlier in the film. It's kind of a little bit of a fun red herring. We see these cloaked figures running around and could it be the killer? But no, it's it's these frat guys. Yeah. Riding home, the detectives are murdered by the killer. I believe Haley asked where they're going and the maybe gay detective makes a don't ask, don't tell joke before getting murdered. So, Hey, 1997, everyone. Don't you think it's, it's such a great thing to say to someone who's being, who survived a traumatic serial killing spree 
and is currently in the middle of another one. And, and like when he when he says like if we tell you where we're going, we'll have to kill you. Yeah, it seems a little in poor taste. Uh, Very poor taste. In, speaking of in poor taste, but is actually brilliant taste. One of the detectives, uh, the killer tries to pull away and run down the detective, but he stays on the hood of the car. He gets brutally impaled. Love this. By a metal pole. This is and the second movie in a row where something's impaled <laughs> and through the skull with a metal pole. <laughs> oh my God, you're right. I think we should and keep this both, streak going. And in both movies, they're kind of highlights. Yeah. Really. Um, I love the shot of him, his hand still twitching on the gun, uh, when he's very clearly dead. Yep. I also like Haley asking, is he dead? <laughs> Sydney has to look and be like, I, I think so. <laughs> it's like, guys, he got his brain impaled. What are you doing? <laughs> um, so the girls are now trapped in the back of the police cruiser and the killer is passed out on the front seats. They have crashed. So the killer is knocked out. They break open the back cage because they're stuck. It's a police cruiser. You're not supposed to be able to get out of the police cruiser. Um, they break open the back cage and have to crawl over the killer to escape. Um, this genuinely gave me some like some tension uh, yeah. the whole time. I couldn't remember. I couldn't remember if the killer woke up here or not. And um, yeah, there's genuine tension here. They escape, including Haley. So they're both out and they're safe. They stupidly don't take off his mask. Uh, and they So stupid. So stupid. But Sydney, after like 10 steps, decides, you know what? I do want to go take off the killer's mask after not doing it when I should have done it. Because surprise, the killer is gone. Haley is murdered in front of Sydney. Again, the black character just gets randomly killed off. Haley had no character besides being Sydney's friend, but she's murdered. Um, Sydney takes off running. Yeah. Cut back to Gail. Um, Cotton finds her in the hallway covered in blood. Gail freaks out. He says he just found Dewey and that he was trying to help. And that explains the blood. Gail does not believe him. Gail runs out and finds Debbie Salt on the phone. Um, Debbie is calling into her news station. Yep. Yes. <clears throat> her <clears throat> news station. I, I think that the, the sequence with Gail and Dewey in the film school building is and it combined with this like that's like the second best thing about the movie after the opening sequence you think so i do um because i i like the the killer i mean obviously it's very stupid that they don't take off the killer's mask but i like the let's go back to the car the killer's not there after the tension of like having to crawl over the killer to get out of the car going back the killer's not there clearly just ran down the street to get to Haley in the distance and then kills her. I think that works. That kind of, that works for me every time. Um, okay. All right. I, I do. I like everything with the detectives being killed and then, you know, the, the car chase. I like all that. I think um, the second they got out of the car and they're both safe, I'm like, Oh, they're going to do something stupid. And one of them's going to die. And that's exactly what happened. It's, it's the weakest part of the scene. I mean, I agree. Like, you know, good ha- head impaling is, is the best part. Um, I love, love the head impaling. Yeah. Um, speaking of head impaling, I basically want to do that to myself every time I watch the end of this movie. <laughs> if we weren't doing it for the podcast, I would want to. I, I really do not like everything that happens between now and the end of the movie, which is basically just this one last scene. Yeah. So, I mean, do I have like this deep seated, like in- intense hatred for it? No, but I really don't like this scene. No. So. This is the auditorium scene. Sydney is chased back to the auditorium by the killer who reveals himself to be Mickey. 
Nikki, the psycho Tarantino film student. Yep. Those exact words. Uh, Sydney finds Derek still tied up to the cross that is that is frat bros and some of the sorority girls tied him to. Uh, Mickey pretends initially that Derek is his partner, and that doesn't last very long because Sydney clearly doesn't believe it. Uh, and then he says he's going to kill Sydney and blame the blame violent movies for his behavior. And he just kills Derek. And so why why even? I, he's just being he's being weird. So I mean, he's clearly twisting the knife. Very, very much so. And, and Timothy Oliphant is is interesting in this. Like I would describe him as doing a Walmart Stu Mocker impression. He's he's like he's going for it. I don't think what he's going for is necessarily great, but he's yeah. going for it. Yeah, he's he's trying. I, I don't really think like the script necessarily does him any favors, but I I, I think he's. I think it's to me, it's obvious that he watched the first movie and is subconsciously or consciously trying to do a little bit of what Matthew Matthew Lillard did when he doesn't. I don't think he needs to, but it's it's more of the it's more of that, like painful, like, well, it really worked in the first movie. People responded to it really well. So let's do it again. Well, and also, I mean, we get a repeat essentially of the motive because his motive is that he's just a sadistic, crazy person. Yeah. And he reveals his accomplice, who is none other than Debbie fucking <laughs> oh, Salt. Debbie Salt, here she comes. She leads Gail in a company. So do you have, have you seen anything with um, Lori Metcalf? About this yeah. film? No, just the, have you seen anything else she's done? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I don't, I think I always forget that this is her. I feel like I'm used to seeing her in yeah, more dramatic sure. things. And she has a weird short haircut. Yeah. Yeah. That it, it, she, but she was in like Roseanne for a while. I mean, that's not like, you know, that that's not a drama, but like it, it just, this was so weird. I mean, she was in, she was in third rock. She was in Frasier. She was in lady bird. Probably the thing I remember her more recently from. Um, and she is really also going for it here. Yeah. Yeah. She's really got that whole like 90s mom look going on, like 90s crazy mom. And she leads Gail in, like I said, and she and Sydney immediately recognizes Debbie as Mrs. Loomis, which begs the question, how did Sydney never see her on campus before ever? I actually I have kind of an answer to this. It's because uh, Debbie Salt is always around Gail and Sydney wants nothing to do with Gail. I guess, I guess it just, I, I find it hard to believe that she never ran into her and never saw her in the distance and was like, Oh, Hey, that looks like Mrs. Loomis. And they say, and I feel like they, they immediately try to explain that away and yeah, say like, like, Oh, I lost so much of weight. And like, I got work done on my face, but it doesn't matter because Sydney recognized her immediately. So yeah, because whatever. tellingly the only people that would recognize her are the, the Westboro is it Westboro or Hillsboro? Wellsboro. West Westboro. Westboro. Yeah. Westboro. Westboro. Only the Westboro crew would even recognize her anyway. And maybe even only Sydney. Yeah. So Mrs. Loomis shoots Mickey says she wants to kill Sydney for killing her son. Mickey um, shoot as he's kind of falling down. He shoots Gail in like the stomach or like at the side or something like that. And Sydney says, Mrs. Loomis is a hypocrite. She abandoned Billy and 
you know, is to blame for his behavior, which she kind of just, she's clearly unhinged. She loses her mind a little bit about this. They, you know, she reveals that she was the one that killed Rad, Randy because Randy was insulting Billy. Um, and they kind of like Mrs. Loomis gets in that um, franchise classic insult to Sydney's mom. Like they just love blaming Sydney's mom, like calling her a whore and all that shit. It's annoying. I, I don't, like I mentioned before, it doesn't work for me. And there's this really just awful <laughs> chasing. Like this. it's so awful. I love this. Mrs. I, Lewis I, and Sydney like fight, like use. They a, have to, yeah. Well, they have to give Sydney like someone she can fight against. It's the thing that action movies, especially Marvel movies, do now. Which like I don't, I I don't like seeing women get punched. I don't like seeing women get hurt. Like I think society has a reckoning to do with violence against women. I understand all that. But in Marvel movies, like they always pair up a female hero with a female villain to fight. So it's a woman fighting a woman. Um, and I feel like they wanted to do that here so that it could be a more physical confrontation. But it's it's just so fucking silly. Yeah. And they're just they're wrestling around this this stage that we saw before. There's like lights and props like Cindy's just dropping all this shit on it's Mrs. Like Loomis. It is like a, it's like a silly, dumb cartoon. It does not work at all. Um, this is interrupted. This nonsense is interrupted by Cotton, who shows up with a gun. It's like, thank God Cotton shows up because I couldn't thank dealt God with lax gun laws. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Mrs. Loomis takes Sydney as a human shield and tries to, like, manipulate Cotton into killing. Uh, hold, on, hold on. I would like you to read that line from your notes. <laughs> Uh, you mean my typo? <laughs> yes. I wrote I down. That, and I, read that and I was like, "Wait a minute! Did she try to get him, like to death by cotton?" Like, I. I was like, "Wait a minute! That's not what happened." Death by cotton. Uh, I wrote Mrs. Loomis tries to manipulate cotton into killing Mrs. Loomis. I wasn't even reading from our outline. I just know what the answer is, and I didn't even realize that I wrote it wrong until you called it out. Um, yeah, Miss, Mrs. Loomis tries to manipulate Cotton into killing Sydney, and Sydney tells Cotton she'll do the Diane Sawyer interview with him. So Cotton shoots Mrs. Loomis. Just a really like if you compare this to the end of the like the big just ending cannot, of the first movie, it's yeah, like it's not even close. No. Um, so Mickey gets back up because the the scream has a funny thing about oh they always get back up. Um, he gets back up, but Gail and Sydney shoot him, and he's dead. And then Sydney, for good measure, shoots Mrs. Loomis, shoots, God rest her soul, Debbie Salt in the head just to make sure she's dead. And she is. Which, thank thank you. I like when horror movies do that. Just, yes. Just get him in the head. One in the abdomen is not enough. Yep. Um, and Dewey's revealed to be alive. And Gail admits she really cares for him. And so they get a happy ending. The press, the press approach Sydney. She tells them, talk to Cotton. Um, and kind of turns it over to him, gives him the fame that he wants. And yes. then the movie ends. Then mercifully it ends. Yeah. Um, let's, let's, let's fly through these. What, what works for you? Um, what works? I think the acting for the most part, like Nev Campbell is pretty good in what she needs to do. I guess mainly only Nev Campbell. <laughs> yeah. um, what else works? I think, I think part of it is that hits that fun uh, element. I think the opening scene is really fun. I think some of the kills are fun. I like the chases with the killer because I think the clumsy killer is a, a recipe for an interesting chase, but th that's about it. I think, yeah, that's about it. We'll get to what doesn't work. What, what works for you? Like you said, the opening, um, some of the meta jokes, 
I guess the the general like trying to continuing the meta jokes of the first one don't work for me, but I like the moment where Randy's like, it's too obvious. To, it can't be Derek. Um, regardless of if I was giving the movie too much credit for a line like that, it's fine. I still like that that moment. Um, like, like you mentioned, Nev Campbell is good. I I think Timothy Oliphant is 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 probably good. I mean, as good as you can <laughs> deal with. He's he's not like Schrodinger's Oliphant. He's either good or he's not. Which is it? He's good. I think he's good. It's just not. It's just relative to the first movie. It's just not even close. And then those two scenes I mentioned, I think some of the kills are good and that some of the, the kill sequences mostly like they work to a degree, but what doesn't work for me is most pretty, basically everything else. The movie's a, like a smidge too long. There's too much emphasis on the meta-ness and they don't do enough with it. They don't reconcile the things that they're trying to like call out. Um, like, like you mentioned like with, with the lack of representation, um, african-american representation in horror movies uh i think jamie kennedy doesn't work the the music is pretty cheesy and i think takes away from the movie but i guess that's very like it's very 90s movie so you yeah you can't that's i'll blame more on the era yeah um yeah like i mentioned all the all the like blaming sydney for the sins of her mother is just so dumb and all all, because all we get about her mother is like secondhand it's it's weak in my opinion and just the the ending is so over theatrical, no pun in, like, tended. It's so cheesy and it does not work at all. At all. Yeah. For what doesn't work, um, I'm going to say the length. I definitely think it's too long. I think going along with that, I think there's just one too many red herrings. Yeah. I think you get excise Dewey from the movie. I think part of what makes Scream tick as a franchise is this speculation the entire time about who the killer is, how many killers there are, which is true of all slasher films, but the Scream franchise, particularly that's kind of the crutch it leans on. And I think it just takes away from other elements of the film. Like I don't necessarily need to hear all this discussion about who the killer could be. Give me more fun kills and we'll get to the killer reveal when the killer reveal comes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Um, I think the ending is is over the top, stupid and silly. And I, you know, I think it's fair to compare it to Scream 1 because they exist within the same franchise. I'm not going to try and compare Scream 2 to Hereditary, but I think it's fair to compare Scream 2 to Scream 1. And you're absolutely right. The climax of Scream 1, Scream, Scream 1 just takes a shit all over this movie. Scream 1 is just much better. <laughs> it does. And the climax, the climax of Scream 1 compared to the climax of this film, like it's apples and oranges. It's just not even close. Um, yeah, so yeah, a lot of this film just doesn't, it just doesn't work for me. It's too long. It's, there's just too much red herring going on. I, I just, yeah, yeah. I, this movie for me overall, um, I was not, I did not come off very fond of this film. I think it's above average, but barely. I don't think so. I don't think it's above average. Okay. I, that's fair. I mean, I, I could see myself coming to the same conclusion at some point. Or I already feel that way, and I'm just lying to myself. <laughs> you lie to yourself know. a lot. I do. I really do. So, if this was a video game, what 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 are you thinking for this? So it's uh, well, I won't give anything away, but um, there's a certain game uh, where you can play as the killer. There are multiple games where you can play as the killer, but uh, there there is a game where you can play as the killer, and you have people running and hiding, and you have to go hunt them down if you're the killer. 
Um, and I would do something like that. I wouldn't have the game be from the hero's perspective. I would have it be more like a Manhunter, which is not the game I'm referencing, but it's somewhat sure. similar. Manhunter where you're hunting down people and doing these gruesome kills. Um, that's what I would do. How about you? I went way, way out there with my idea. I did like a playable graphic novel type game. You are, it's like a college life sim game, sort of at the same time, like where you're playing as Sydney. It's not really like persona like life sim. It's more just like Sydney goes to class and comes home. And then eventually like the killer, the killings are on the news and things like that. But the killer shows up on campus. The killer keeps popping up and killing your friends. You have to gather clues through like dialogue trees and eventually deduce the killer. You got like this whole cast. It's basically like a, like a playable like graphic novel detective story. I like that. How would you though feel about a Scream Persona crossover? Because Scream 2 Persona crossover, actually I would play the the bejesus out of that because <laughs> a Scream 2, like Persona has done a lot of things. And I know there's the Persona 4 where it's mysteries happening over town and you go into TVs. How awesome would a Persona game be if there was just a serial killer going around a college campus and causing like psychic disturbances that you had to go solve? It would That would be neat. I like that it more is like a crossover for like a fan fiction purposes than I would like an actual video game. We'll get to that. We will. So um, tell me, why do you want to live in this world? I don't want to live in this world. I don't <laughs> want to live in a world where Dewey could be a deputy defending our lives. Oh, you're, you're really coming at this from the wrong, <laughs> the wrong, you know what? I'll take it. Whatever your reasoning is. Yeah. I don't want to live in this world either. Also, it's just basically to- our world, but with, more with serial killers that are having grudges about people's moms. Yes. Also, Gail is apparently a mediocre writer, so I wouldn't even want to read her book. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. So what did you find for fan fiction? Fan fiction corner was surprisingly bare bones. Pretty dull. Search specifically for um, um, Scream 2 fan fiction, not of the Scream franchise. There's a lot yeah. of fan fiction about the Scream franchise, not a lot about Scream 2. So I found one called Dollhouse slash Scream Series 2. Did you find this one? No, I did not. Okay. So essentially, it's about Sydney's twin sister, Kat, um, and her living through the events of Scream 2. That's it. Okay. <laughs> That's it. Jeez. But it gives, it, it gives us um, the Scream 2 perspective from Sydney's secret twin sister. So that's fun. Hmm. What did you find? Um, I found Scream 2, the alternate version. Some oh, author okay. wrote alternate versions of all the Scream movies. I didn't read alternate. Beyond Scream 2, but so this is a continuation from what they did with Scream 1. I had to look at their Scream 1 alternate version to seek to explain some of the nonsense I was reading in this one. So at the end of this one, Scream 2, the alternate version, Derek is the killer with Debbie, not Mickey. Tatum played by Rose McGowan in the first movie, did not die in the first one. She ends up marrying Mickey. And who does Sydney marry? Cotton. Billy Loomis. What? Billy Loomis is not the killer in the first movie. They In in their alternate version of Scream 1, Stu and Randy are the killers. And their just motive is like they're obsessed with movies. Interesting. I feel like they, this author was like, oh, it should have been Stu and Randy. I'm going to write that uh, like a whole screenplay to explain a movie where, where they're the killers. But to be fair, that is the truest essence of what fan fiction is. I guess so. 
You're right. So the fact that they kept with it and did a scream too, I'm going to say this person wins our fan fiction, our, our fan author award. <laughs> I didn't know we had one. Well, we're giving one out and we're giving it to them <laughs> because how many fan fictions have we read where they give up after the first chapter of the first scene? That's true. And, and, but actually don't give out the award just yet. Cause I haven't read to you um, the scream little mermaid crossover. What the story is called my dreams and into my car. The story, the story is called Chapter One: The Death of a Mermaid One. (laughs) (laughs) So there's going to be a Chapter Two: Death of a Mermaid Two, maybe. Yeah. uh, So I'm going to read to you Chapter One because there's two chapters and they're not separated in fanfiction.net as chapters. There's just two paragraphs and one is a chapter and the other is a chapter and it's basically just run-on sentences. Please. Here's Chapter One. The death of a mermaid on a stormy night. The queen mermaid is cooking popcorn and suddenly gets she gets a call. She picks up the phone. The man says, hello. The man says, do you like scary movies? Guessing game. If you get it right, you live, get it wrong. You die. What is the name of the killer from Halloween? She says, Michael Myers and Ghostface voice says, you got that right. Last question. What, what's the name of the killer from Friday 13th? She said, Jason, no wrong answer. She said, that's the right answer. I saw the movie many times. Then you should know Mrs. Loomis was original killer. Jason didn't show up <laughs> to the sequel she said you tricked me what you going to do now i i'm really in the house and then she turned around see Ghostface coming towards her he lunges at her throat she kicked him on the ground and ran outside she ran around the corner of the house and got attacked by Ghostface. he tackled her to the ground and starts to strangle her he says goodbye he strangles her to death now cuts to ariel the little mermaid end of chapter one okay um, I like how it slipped into both past and present tense. Love that. Um, love Little Mermaid representation. It's my one of my favorite Disney films. Um, yeah, I'm I'm all about this fanfic. So we're gonna take that author award away and give it to this one. Chapter yeah. two. I'm not gonna read it because it'd be painful. It's like twice as long as that sentence is. And but it's Ariel typing on a computer, uh, and she sees Prince Eric, who's Billy Loomis. <laughs> uh, of course he is. Yeah. So um, I really wish I could have seen how the story ended. They stopped after chapter two. God damn them. All right. I'm rescinding the award then. Yeah. Sorry about yeah. that. Yeah. Um, I think this warrants fan fiction uh, as yeah. evidenced by, by the fan fiction you were talking about. I, I mean, this is one of those situations where you could just do fan fiction of a better movie. Yeah. Honestly, you could just rewrite the movie, but make it good. <laughs> That's that's as far as I thought for my own fan, fan fiction. So, all right. Well, what have you been up to now that we're done with Screen Two Talk? I've been doing some things. Uh, I am. I mean, I haven't made much One Piece progress, but I have gotten back into other anime. Uh, my My Hero Academia is back, and it is quite good. It starts off with a bang, and it has not stopped. Nice. Um, I need to I, I am watching season three of my uh, not My Hero God uh, Mob Psycho One Hundred, which I also am enjoying. It's fun. I I saw a bunch of movies. I saw Glass Onion. How was it? The Knives Out Mystery. I liked it. Not as much as the first one, but it is very good. Ryan Johnson knows what he's doing. And I really just want him to make Benoit Blanc movies for the rest of his life. And maybe he will. I really hope that Daniel Craig plays Benoit Blanc until he dies, which hopefully is a long time from now. I think you were going to say, which hopefully is soon. So <laughs> no. He can cement his legacy now. <laughs> No, a couple uh, quick one-off ones. And then I'll talk about the one I really want to talk about, which is I saw Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. It's one of 
Park Chan-wook's uh, earliest movies is the one he made before Old Boy. It's the first movie in his Vengeance trilogy. I thought it was okay. I saw Broker, which is a new movie. It um, has Song Kang-ho in it, who is like the lead actor from Parasite and the host. Uh, he plays a, a man who is working with a couple other people, is essentially illegally be, like acting as like a brokers for baby adoption to try to make money. And it's kind of a movie about like chosen families, which I think has some good ideas, but doesn't quite do as much emotionally as I wish it would have. I saw The Banshees of Inishirin, which is very good. Uh, Colin Farrell might be it might be one of my favorite Colin Farrell performances. Uh, if not my favorite, I think that you Martin, not the penguin. Correct. Now I do like him as the penguin though, but this is just my, my moment to say, I'm not going to spoil anything about Banshee's Vinishir. And it's a very dark comedy as are basically all of Michael, uh, uh, Martin McDonough, sorry, not Michael Martin McDonough's plays and films. I would recommend, I haven't read all of them yet, but I would basically recommend every single thing Martin McDonough has ever written, be it and made, be it a play or a film. Um, I think the Lieutenant of Inishmore is an, an excellent play and just a good read in general. It's a nice, fast read and it's a funny, dark comedy. I highly recommend it. Um, but yeah, Banshees of Inishir and um, very good movie. I think his best movie is still in Bruges, um, but this is uh, probably a close second for me. Nice. Um, I saw Terrifier 2. Which, yeah, you, yeah, you mentioned you had seen <clears throat> Terrifier 1. Yeah, and so I watched Terrifier 2. I had to see what all the fuss was about. And it has some of the most gruesomely upsetting kills in a movie that I've ever seen. Um, and well, when I say some, I mean, basically just one. There's one scene that was just kind of too much for me. Um, some of the other kills are just kind of like deliriously, but also kind of like funny and how over the top they are, how like gory they are. Um, but overall, so I would recommend the movie overall. It is way too long. It is like a nearly two and a half hour long slasher movie. There's Ugh. it is no business being that long. No. And it's very convoluted. It tries to do way too much with its plot. I think it's like trying to spend every single dime of the money that was raised by the by the by the fans. And but th that all said, I think the the killer in the movie in this franchise Art the Clown is a very good like idea, like physical presence, um, effective, like scary killer. And I, I hope they make another one. And I hope that the director learns how to kind of dial it back. How about you? What have you been up to? Well, um, I Edgar and I watched Gringo. Did I talk about Gringo last time? Uh, I don't think so, but I've heard of the movie. Yeah, it's with Joel Edgerton and uh, Charlize Theron. And, oh, wait, yeah, you um, did. I'm sorry. You did. Well, then yeah. forget it. Yeah, I don't um, want to hear it again. All I'm right. sorry. <laughs> uh, um, no, I watched Last Night in Soho with Edgar. Um, and I don't know why I keep saying that note because I watch all movies with Edgar. So if there's a movie, just assume that Edgar also watched it. Um, but I watched Last Night in Soho, which was written and directed by Edgar Wright. Um, I liked it. Uh, I did not like some of the things they pulled at the end. But as a film, yeah. I thought it was very well directed, well acted. Um, Anya Taylor joy i always yeah her name. yeah yep. anya taylor joy she's great i love her um she has like such a she's has such range because just the look on her she doesn't actually ha have a lot of lines of dialogue in the mill her film i mean she does but not as many as other characters 
but just like a steely icy stare on her face can yeah. say so much more than any lines they give her. I, I, a phenomenal actress. I really like her. I, I walked away from that movie being like Thomas and McKenzie is incredible. She, yes, she also does a phenomenal job. I think, like I said, I think it's very well acted, very well directed. I think the plot just doesn't quite hold it together by the end, but yeah. I think it's, I think it's worth seeing. Um, if it was last night in Soho or Scream 2, I would say last night in Soho. Um, well, that then, would definitely. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, I picked up um, Mario and Rapids, the new one, and I'm having quite a bit of fun with it. They made basically nothing but improvements over the first one, which I also thought was a very fun game, but this is the most fun I've had with a strategy tactical game in nice. a very, very, very long time, which is satisfying. Um, I also told you I picked up grips for my Nintendo Switch. They basically look like if you cut a pro controller in half <laughs> and a fixed either end to the end of your Switch. Uh, for a boy with big old hands like me, it's perfect. And um, yeah, I feel like I'm not going to like smash my Joy-Cons in my hands anymore. So um, and highly recommended. They were yeah. like 45 bucks. You're playing some games that are pretty intense. Uh, I would say like Hollow Knight is definitely something that causes me to like grip my controls very tightly. Yeah, Hollow Knight. Playing Hollow Knight with the grips and on the OLED screen has been a dream come true. I'm also almost 50 hours into Xenoblade Chronicles 3. And oh, wow. how long to beat says it's 60 for the main story. So I'm coming up on finishing that. And the story is kind of wrapping up kind of as well as a JRPG can do. So we'll see where that goes. Nice. I forgot to mention video games. I I I did something. I meant I mentioned it uh I think it was only last week, actually. So I did it in a week. I, I have platinum Dark Souls 3. Jesus and now I have God. I have now platinumed Demon Souls, Dark Souls one, two, three, Bloodborne, Sekiro, and Elden Ring. Good God! Yeah. So I will now be sailing to the Undying Lands. <laughs> I think so. Jesus. Um. I I I did start Hollow Knight. Um. I. I don't know why I picked up persona five strikers again. Maybe it's just cause I gave in to my, that the devil on my shoulder and I bought persona five Royal for switch. I mean, my, in my mind, what I'm going to do is pick it up and play like a day or two, like a couple times a week and not binge the game. Um, we'll see if that actually ends up happening, but persona five strikers i was trying to get a couple more trophies and doing a couple other like side quests that i didn't do and it, it's it's a fun game i i'm again i'm not really i'm not really into the dynasty warriors type games but i think persona five strikers is a pretty damn fun game and it's it's also probably the most different from the dynasty warriors esque games that i that i've ever seen i could see that yeah and i think that's it the grinch <laughs> 